Welcome to StoryWise, the podcast designed to give you the in-depth story behind some of our top storytellers as a way to inform, motivate, and inspire you to believe that you too can make your dreams a reality. My name is Jen Grisanti. I am the career story consultant at Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc., a writer's consultancy designed to help you accomplish your writing goals and reach your career destination through one-on-one consults, teleseminars, and seminars. And I am absolutely thrilled to have with me as my guest today, Deborah Fisher. Deborah is currently co-executive producer on the ABC drama, The Forgotten, starring Christian Slater. Let me tell you a little bit about Deborah. Deborah graduated from University of Maryland, where she studied radio, television, and film. Then she moved from Maryland out to Los Angeles, where she served as a script coordinator on the animated series Sky Surfer Strike Force, Mega Man, and Waynehead, which was created by comedian Damon Waynes. From there, Deborah went to work with Chris Kaiser and Amy Lippman on the Fox show Party of Five. And from Party of Five, she got her first writing gig on Alias, uh, the ABC hit drama created by J.J. Abrams. After two seasons on there, she and her writing partner moved on to the OC. uh, And from there, she went over to Charmed. And from Charmed, she went on to Criminal Minds. And on Criminal Minds, she was there for four seasons and wrote and produced 12 episodes. From Criminal Minds, she went on to be co-executive producer on the ABC procedural The Forgotten. Uh, so, gosh, I, I am shocked. Like, when I think about <laughs> when I first knew you, this is, like, crazy. This is amazing. Hearing you talk about that intro I'm like who is that I don't <laughs> know I don't know that person who I remember that? when I remember when I met with you so many years ago it was I, like 2000 or 2001 that we sat down with you at your incredible. office at uh spelling, at spelling. Yeah. yeah this is absolutely incredible and I am so proud of you and oh, so, thank you <laughs> so impressed I really am I know how difficult it is. I mean, climbing the ranks as a woman in this business, as a writer, and being on these hit shows, especially hit shows, that a few of them are very male-oriented. So I definitely want to talk with you about that. Starting at the beginning, um, I'm very interested um, in when you moved out here from Maryland, what the experience was like of moving out to, did you know people here? What was your greatest challenge when you got here? Did you know what you wanted to do? Tell me about that. When I first decided to move out to Los Angeles, I had, it was right before I graduated from the University of Maryland and I had gotten my degree and I knew a very good friend of mine had moved the year before. She was the only person I knew in all of Los Angeles. So I literally packed up the U-Haul with everything I owned, put the Honda on the back of the little toe, and drove across the country with a friend. And we crashed on her living room floor for two weeks looking for an apartment. And from there, I immediately uh, started working for free 
uh, with UCLA and USC uh, grad students on their like student films. Right. So I was one day I was a production assistant and the next day I would be the assistant camera, you know, person, you know, I did every little job there was. And I quickly discovered that I my first love was not being on set for 16 hour days. I don't blame you. <laughs> I figured that out very quickly. Um, and then I hooked up with this company called PALA and I sat down with them and they said, you seem more inclined. You're the, you know, office type. You, you know, you love writing. Like you're the, you know, what I didn't understand at the time I'd heard these terms. It was like, you're more like uh, above the line, which I was like, that's, you know, a nice thing to say and a horrible thing to say, like all at the same time. <laughs> um, so I ended up, uh, they got me a job at uh, a an animated you know, a, a company that did animated series is called Ruby Spears, and I was their script coordinator. And the uh, Ken Spears and Joe Ruby, they worked for Hanna Barbera. Like they did a lot of you know, big big animated series like coming up. So they had this company, and that's where I worked on uh, Sky Surfer Strike Force and Mega Man and a few other small series. And from there, I worked uh, at. Warner Brothers TV animation, and I was on the Damon Wayans series, Waynehead. And at that job, I spent an enormous amount of time with the writers in their little teeny writer's room. And I have to credit uh, someone who I've gotten back in touch with recently. His name is David Wyatt, and he was a writer there at the time, and he knew I was aspiring to do that. And he would come in every day and say, what have you written why don't you do this? What's going on? What's wrong with you? And I would come up with probably a hundred different excuses as to why I wasn't doing this. And he was leaving at the time to go work on a, a Cosby show uh, that I can't remember the name of. Um, and from there, uh, I met someone who uh, sort of told me about a job that was opening up on a show that I absolutely loved called Party of Five. And the creators and executive producers were looking for a new assistant. And I felt like that was the perfect transition to make because everyone who worked in animation, they called, you know, the drama TV world, you know, feature live action. Everybody wanted to get into live action. So this was like my chance to jump over. And I sat down with them and, you know, basically like poured my heart out. I was like, I don't even remember what I said. Pour your heart out I was like, this. I yeah. love this show yeah. and was told them everything that I loved about it. And uh, when I was driving home, the assistant called me. He's like, don't tell them I told you this, but they canceled all their other, all their other interviews. They're going to hire you, but don't say anything. I love it. So I was so, so I was like over the moon excited. And uh, from there, you know, they produced the show on the Sony lot. And luckily, everything was there. So the writer's offices were there. And the building across the street was the editing, you know, the edit bays, the, all the stages were right there. So it was a wonderful tutorial of this is how you see a show written and produced from start to finish. It was all right in front of me. And Chris and Amy were, you know, such great people to be able to watch 
and I've to heard observe. That. Yeah, I've and, definitely heard that. Yeah, and learn from and the way they, you know, they keep a lot of people around that they've worked with through the years. Um, you know, their headline producer at the time, Ken Topolsky, they like worked with him for years. Oh, I love Ken. Yeah, That's you great. know, Val Joseph, yeah. who they've worked with for years, yeah. you know, who headed up their, you know, post production department. And and then watching them at the time being a writing partnership and would see how they would handle the writer's room. A lot of times they would, would both be in there, but there were days where one would be in the, uh, the writer's room, one would be down in editing, the other would be on set. So I really got to see this sort of, you know, how they work together at this partnership. And at the time I was you know, trying to write while working on this, you know, this hit, you know, show. So you're there, insane hours, you know, I'm working for the executive producers. So my hours, you know, I'm not getting home till late, you know, eight o'clock at night. Yeah. Yeah. And actually that was pretty good considering. And, but it wasn't, I wasn't. are better than comedy in that sense. Yes. Absolutely. And I wasn't having all this motivation to come home and write like I should. So, uh, coincidentally, you know, I was, I'd be talking on the phone every day, like I do to assistants at other areas. And, uh, there was a young woman who I would talk to every day at Fox and she was looking for a new job. Uh, she didn't want to be a studio executive. She wanted to like work on a show. And at the time, Mark Perry was leaving to go do a, a pilot called Push, and he was taking the writer's assistant with him. So uh, her name was Erica Messer, and I was like, you should come in and you should interview, and she ended up getting the job. Right. And she also was an aspiring writer, and the same exact thing, like, exhausted, I want to be a writer, but I have no time, you know, I have no motivation, coming up with every excuse. So uh, Chris and Amy, they, I think it was like the fourth season of Party of Five, they just got this big overall deal with Sony and Fox and they, you know, we got new big fancy offices and they got a development executive and her name was Deborah Sincata and she was amazing and she sort of like mentored us through this period and was like, she actually suggested, she's like, why don't you guys write together? Like you're trying to do this, like, you know, sort of emulate, you know, Chris and Amy and we were like, okay and we wrote this really 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 bad feature that i have no idea whatever happened to but it's it was so bad that was and your the, practice that piece. was our practice that, piece good. and amy Lippman said to us if you ladies want to write television why don't you write a tv spec so we were like duh right we should be writing a tv spec so and we uh at the time eric and i had exact very similar tastes in like the shows that we love to watch and so we decided to write a spec once and again and we that's spent... what i read of yours yes yes i yes. loved that it was i know yeah. i still like i still love that spec yeah um we spent a, a long long time working on it and it was really great because amy actually gave us notes like we were staff writers. Oh, that's fantastic. And she sat down, and I have to say it was probably the most horrific experience in my entire life. I've, I've that never... That first notes meeting. <laughs> oh, I've never felt... I've felt so many emotions, but, I mean, she was right about everything, and it did nothing but elevate our script to, you know, great levels. And we reached out to, like, every writer that we had come in contact. So we, we probably had you know, 20 people read this thing. So by the time all was said and done, 
it had to be pretty good. So yeah, but that was a very, very smart strategic move. I mean, at that point in the game, you recognize how. I mean, the competition competition is fierce, and yes. so you have to stand out. And how do you stand out? You get as many opinions as possible, and then you utilize your your context with where you work. I yeah. think that's fantastic. It's funny when you talk about opinions too, and a lot of people had very they had very visceral reactions to the topic of our our spec. Right. And some people were like, you shouldn't do that because they're going to go there in the series. Right. But we sort of like dug in and stuck to our guns and we were like, that's okay, but what we're going to do, we're going to like flip it on its head and we're going to make it a little bit different. So we stuck to our guns and we persevered and I'm happy we did because we gave it to Deborah Sincata when we were done and she contacted like three young agents at great agencies and said are you looking for baby writers because Chris Kaiser and Amy Littman's assistants are a writing team and they wrote this great spec and I have to credit her for like getting our thing out there wow and we got a couple bites and you know Larry Sauls and Dan Ehrlich at UTA who I am still great represented by. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say a great agency <laughs> to start your career yeah. with. Boy, that's fantastic. Still my agents to this day. And um, Dan's they, fantastic. Yeah. That's great. They loved it. Yeah, and I don't know Larry as well, but yeah, Dan. He's great too. Oh, that's great. They are, they're perfect. And so they loved it. And we ended up, you know, quote unquote, signing with them. And from there, you know, it took off. So see, but. I mean, what's fascinating to me is, like, you came out here, you did the work, though, you went into the animated world, you realize, I'm sure you probably still draw from some of what you learned there, and then you move on to the assistant job, and then from there, now, how long were you an assistant before you staffed as It was probably writing? all said and done, even when uh, we signed with UTA, we spent that whole year doing uh, network and studio meetings right. while still working as an assistant for Chris and Amy. They were very supportive. They were like, we'll let you guys go on your meetings. We we did our best to schedule them like first thing in the morning right. and very late at night and have obviously have someone cover our phones. And right. So we spread those out from like October oh, to May. Yeah. Um, but when all was said and done, I think it was probably like three and a half to four years that I was their assistant. It was right. a very long period no, that's when all was said know. and done. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and it's good for everyone out there to know. I was an assistant in the spelling. I think I was an assistant for four years before I, I became a script coordinator my third year at spelling, but I had done some assistant work before I started at spelling. So Yeah, it was a yeah. long it was a long haul, but very worth it. And I credit that job to like for example, they would hire staff writers, like let's say for example from um, the theater world and they would come in and they'd run into our office you know because the assistants are like the gatekeepers to all yeah. and they would say what's a concept meeting what's a tone meeting what's a production meeting and they had no clue as to what it was like to actually produce a tv show and when we finally got our first job like we knew exactly like who the network people were who the studio people were and what took place like what these meetings were for what we should be doing for them in them like everything it was we had no idea how much we had learned being assistants but and and I think that's great for our our listeners out there to know because really it it 
helps to work in a writer's office. You want to be as close to the writing room as possible. Now, tell me about your first day as a staff writer. That was an interesting experience. Um, our, our first day as a staff writer was also a half day at being an assistant, too, because right, right. when we got hired, literally, they said, you start tomorrow. And uh, we had to call Chris and Amy, who were in New York for the upfronts for the heart department, which was a pilot in contention at CBS. And sadly, in the same day that they heard the heart department was not going to get picked up, we told them that we got a job oh on the ABC drama Alias. So as happy as they were, you know, for us, they, you know, they were sad. So we had to sort of scramble and get someone to cover for us while we showed up on our first day. And at the time, they had already hired uh, several, JJ had already hired a lot of writers, I believe, uh, Vanessa Taylor, yes, Daniel Arkin, right. and uh, Jeff Pinkner. Oh, so yeah, that's they a had, great group. They had done a yeah. lot of work, and it, JJ had wanted to hire more women. So right. luckily, you know, in walks you know, two women, yeah. and he got two for one, quote, you know, writing team. And so it was a, a huge shock, right. I have to say, the room the first day. I don't know if we probably said more than 10 words <laughs> the whole first few hours because we were just like, we're not here as assistants. We are here because we are paying, we're being paid to be writers. And so we were just listening and looking, we probably looked like a deers in headlights. And but everybody ha has had that same day. I'm sure. So, I'm sure. Know, Vanessa had been on Gideon's, I think, before yes. that, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so it just it just became you know everyone is just talking. It's right. like you know I have a half Italian family, half English Irish family, and it's like sitting at the dinner table with your family. Everyone's right. talking a hundred miles a minute. Everyone's talking over each other. And if you don't jump in there and get in there and start talking, no one's ever going to hear you. <laughs> so you just got to, you know, jump in and just start going for it. It's like being at it. the family dinner table. Yeah. yeah and then and, yeah. and then you just sort of have to interrupt people. Yes. And then they're like, wait, someone's talking. <laughs> who Who are you? And then they like look over and you don't stop and you just keep getting your point across or your pitch. It's like, well, I have this pitch for Sydney Bristow. Da -da 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 -da. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's a great idea. So you really have to, you know, not be afraid. You have to move past your fear and speak up. Absolutely. No, and I think 100%. that that's good. Was it's interesting on a brand new show. Like, I always wonder how you move into unless the showrunner sets down the law from the beginning. Because I know I've spoken to plenty of writers who the hierarchy is very prevalent in the room um, and other places where it's like anybody who has a good idea could be a writer's assistant, could be a PA, could be an assistant, could be anybody. They're just open to good ideas. So yes. with Alias, what was it like working with J.J. Abrams? He is an absolute genius. He's, yes. He really is. Yeah. He can do like four or five things at once. Right. And – he would come in sometimes and he would spread out all of his art on the table <laughs> and his pens and his drawing and his, you know, 
he would start to draw and wow. we would be talking and pitch and then he would just jump up and start talking so he would be able to listen to everyone 100% but he would also be creating this wonderful drawing at the same time and a true artist isn't that interesting That's yes fascinating and he was it was fascinating like I would just sit there sometimes and stare at him and think how like what is going on in that brain and how can I get in there and steal some of that and put it like inside my head because we you know everyone would be pitching him what we've been working on and he would just look at the board and say you should do this, this, and this. And it would basically like fix the story problems. So I was completely in awe of him and, and of so his writing. So it was writing. a good place for you to be a sponge. That was fantastic. Yes. And they were very, very responsive. When we finally wrote our first script, uh, it was received very well. And, right. and JJ was really supportive of it. And Alex Kurtzman and Bob Orsi, oh, who yeah, were like fantastic. the number twos, yeah. number threes over there, they really liked it. So... It was a it was a great and look at them now. wonderful oh I uh -huh. know good I was so amazing. proud of them when I saw Star Trek first of all I'm like okay I'm so not that type of girl typically I loved that movie I loved it I was like okay, it was an amazing, amazing it was an amazing movie now it, you touch on a thing that I think is interesting because. Um, it is a fascinating thing when you get to work with the genius level um, showrunner, which you're on your way to being, um, is it, it is an amazing thing as far as some showrunners I've certainly noticed in my career, they'll take on like a golden child and, and that writer will get all of the attention. And I've seen so many writers be in the glow of that moment and then it moves on to another writer have you experienced that and what has that been like and i have on any of the shows that. you've been on yes i have seen that and it is and you never know who it's going to be and who's going to be the star and how long it's gonna last yes and how long it's gonna <laughs> last and i have to say probably on Ilias, it was it was bob and alex because john eisendrath was was jj's you know he was the he ran the room and you know, Bob and Alex came in and they were sort of like the number two to, to John, but they really, they got, you know, that was their wheelhouse. Yeah. You know, the action. Yeah. And, you know, they really understood like what Alias should be. And so they were sort of elevated, you know, to probably, it felt more like they were very equal to John. Right. And that, so right. being a staff writer, I don't know how that was for them and right. their dynamic. Right. You know, now you know, nine, ten years later, I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of behind the scenes going on that I didn't know about. But right. for us, it was like, oh, Bob and Alex were those golden child. Yeah. They were, you know, helping rewrite a lot. Right. And, you know, from there, they, they did a couple. They started working with J.J. nonstop after, you know, yeah. after Alias. So it and was. And do you feel like once you're in a family like that and, and people branch off, uh, you form these relationships. Do you keep in touch with any of those writers? Yeah. I, I'm always curious. I do, actually. I still keep tabs on, you know, Bob Orsi. <clears throat> run into them from time to time. I even run into John Eisendrath from time to time. You know, John I, has continuously worked. Yes. John has, like, got deals all the time. I mean, ever since 90210, I'm like, okay, this, like you, just absolutely nonstop. Just That's keeps fantastic. going. But, yeah, I still talk to Vanessa Taylor, yes. you know, Daniel Arkin. Yes. I think from each show, there's 
a, a writer or two that that you bond with absolutely and they become a part of your inner circle and yes. you travel and i think it's very good for people to know that relationships are everything in this business it's a very yeah. small business yes. you can't even believe how small a world you do not it is. want to burn bridges <laughs> no. no no i always tell people if you need to vent talk to your family <laughs> yes <laughs> tell your exactly family. talk to your um, boyfriend your girlfriend your husband your wife away from yes no, I totally agree with that. Now, it's interesting. So you went from Alias to the OC. What was that transition like? How did the the Alias writer's room differ from the OC writer room and, and the experience? It was, A, first of all, difference in a sense that it was so much smaller because there were probably 9 or 10, 11 writers in the Alias writer's room. And at the OC, it was so small. It was... You know, Melissa Rosenberg. Oh, yeah. And at right. the time, Lauren Gussis was our writer's assistant. Oh, my gosh. Um, that's great. You know, Erica, myself, a cu- you know, a, a couple other writers. Uh, J.J. Philbin came in late. Uh, Liz Friedman, who's now on House, came in right. at a certain time. It, it, it was always, it felt like there were only four or five of us. So we had so much fun at times. I, I look back, and there were times when it was like Melissa and Erica, myself, and and Lauren in the room, and there was a stretch where we broke some stories, and I don't know if I've ever had that much fun in the room. Like we would laugh so hard all day long, oh, and it was that. a great it was a great experience, and it was it was very different. But I felt like I came from that world. Like growing up, I I loved teen drama. Yeah. So being on Alias, it's now I have. I can write action. And so it felt like going to the OC, I was going back to something that I, you know, knew very near and dear and could, you know, write with my eyes closed. Right. You know, being in that. And it was, we worked on that summer series. We we left immediately alias and went right to the OC. We worked on that summer series that they did. They aired like six episodes. I remember. In August and then that whole yeah. first season. So, you know, there was a lot of fun to be had. There. Were you exhausted going from yes. one to the other? I was yes. going to say that's a lot of work. It yes, the happy no problem hiatus. though. <laughs> I was, I, that's the way I looked at it. It was very quality problem yes. to be exhausted. Yeah. So. And now, what about the OC? As far as um, wait, who was the creator? That's Josh, Josh Schwartz. Schwartz. What yes. was he like? Like I, you've been around all these geniuses, and I know. Everybody has their ways that they work, and some are embracing, some are a little more isolated. What was he like? He, in the beginning, was very – he was a future writer. He was young he, then. He was yeah. 26, I believe. Wow. And he had done a few pilots that were not produced, and I don't definitely didn't make it to air, but the OC was his first big gig. And so he was a feature writer also, and – he didn't know or understand the writer's room, so I think he was very intimidated by it at first. And I remember he, he came in a couple times and sat down, and he looked like a fish, you know, a fish out of water completely. And But he spent some time in there, but soon after, sadly, he disappeared. And he, needed, he was doing a lot of rewriting from home right. and a lot of rewriting from his office. So sadly, we sort of 
it became like, where's Josh? And we didn't have connection to the showrunner anymore. And that was a bummer. And I think that was probably something that they and he and Stephanie Savage, who was present a lot in that first season, probably look back and say, oh, that's probably, you know, something that we would change. Right. In the next year. And I'm sure they they do things very differently. But, you know, you learn. You do learn. You learn from every single. I mean, I think with every single job, just as every single script you write, you learn and you grow and you move forward. So I think you do. It is like I can say um, when I was a current executive at the studio, it would be like watching all the different management styles of the showrunners and seeing when a show would start on the first day and it would be a brand new show and seeing how it would warm into something that really worked. But you have to go over your bumps to get there so you know and you're it it, it's a journey absolutely it is a journey it is now let's see okay so from there you went on to criminal minds where you were on for four seasons oh wait no yeah we had a a stop at charmed yeah you went to charmed first and then and and charmed what was that what was that the difference between that and the oc wow night and day in a sense too because i believe we went on like in the sixth or seventh season right and so that was so hard <laughs> to do. They had done everything. Yeah. I mean, there was no way I could have watched. I I did hadn't seen every episode, so it felt like you went in and you pitched like a hundred ideas, and everything had been done. And because they had so many, I think they were twenty two or twenty four episodes. So yeah, that yes. was hard. It was a yeah. It was a big struggle. Yeah. And and I thought I found that it wasn't so hard to do you know this genre show you know it was like we have imaginations and i think you know as writers network and studio people tend to peg writers like you're either a procedural or your character yeah i want to ask how you jump from charm to criminal mind i'll tell you so i was like you know if you're just like an actor you could do comedy you can do drama i think you know, writers, the same thing. You should be able to adapt and yes. be able to work on any show that's thrown at you. But that, I have to say, was a, a big challenge because it was such a, you know, a show about three sisters who are witches and it was in its sixth season. Wow, it was. Yeah. Well, and it's good for other writers to know that too because, of course, when you come into a show that has been on six seasons, it is very difficult. I would say it's easier now than it was then with Hulu and Netflix and iTunes and everything else too and all the episodic breakdowns that are on all the network sites. You know, I I think now it is, you know, writers do need to be aware. Like I tell writers when they're writing a spec script, read every single episode on the show that you're writing that has been done. So you make sure when you're writing your episode, you're not doing the same story that was done last season. That's so, a great advice. You know, so it it is. And people panic with that too, just as you said with once and again. And, you know, I say you're writers, you, you can change it. Yes. If the show does the story, change it. All yeah. writing is is rewriting. Mm-hmm. That's all it yeah. is. It's no, like we definitely. people you know, they ask they're like, do you what character do you write for? Do you? It's like I'm like you have no idea how many drafts <laughs> we do before right. a show gets on. That's it's rewriting is rewriting. Yeah, over no, and over I and over. totally agree. Okay, with that we are going to take a break, and then when we get back, we are going to jump into Criminal Minds and The Forgotten, and we are here with Deborah Fisher, co-EP on The Forgotten. You're listening to StoryWise with entertainment consultant Jen Grisanti. 
StoryWise is a podcast designed to give you the story behind the people who tell stories, offering you insight on what it takes to work as a writer in television and film. Hear this and other podcasts on www.jencrisanticonsultancy.com, a full-service writer consultancy committed to guiding your vision. We are back with Deborah Fisher, who has a string of series behind her as a writer. And next, we are going to dive into what your experience was like. And and I also want to know how you went from charm to criminal minds, because it's very good for writers who are worried about getting pigeonholed. Absolutely. At, we had no spec or any procedural type spec. So our agents were like, there's this whole other world out there of procedurals. If you guys want to meet on these shows, you're going to have to write one. So in between, right after we left Charmed, we wrote a Law and Order SVU, right. which it was, you know, at the time, and it's probably like yeah, prime. fourth or fifth yeah. season. It was right. doing, you know, phenomenally. And Ed Bernero, who was assigned to be the showrunner on Criminal Minds, read it and responded to it and we went in and sat down and met with him and we ended up getting the job that's fantastic. so it can be done that yeah. you can you know go from just a straight you know character driven show a genre type show and you know write something that someone responds to and you're you're there well and too like you guys chose a good one because law and order svu has some character in it too so it's not yes. so dry right um so i think that was that was an excellent choice for you and then criminal minds i mean that's that show is phenomenal and i really that really is a procedural that goes deep into yes. character yes. so what was that experience like? It was in the beginning. It was it was like a you know very new experience. We had to quickly learn you know this world, this very very dark world. It it was interesting because you know we were working on a show that was about uh, FBI profilers, right? And it was all about serial killers. Yeah. And you know we've got these stacks of books that we're reading, and I went home probably the first or second month and I adopted a very large dog who was like 85 pounds right. and I got a security system put on my home and because I was having these like crazy dreams where I, I believe you know, it I think I'm better off not reading those books yeah, <laughs> yeah so it was like a but then like soon after that it was like you became this thick-skinned and we're just you know we're creating right um it was wonderful we had complete access to we had some real FBI profilers that we right. worked with and we looked at each episode we would either do like a, a non serial killer or an actual like serial killer and we do a lot of research and base loosely base each one on actually someone who had done these horrendous acts before so we sort of like started from that point and sort of would construct our story and right. say, okay, we want to take, you know, do something like this, but in terms of our story, we want him to do A, B, and C. And then we would call our FBI profilers and sort of paint the picture of this serial killer. And they would sort of like profiler. So in our act two scene where we have our team at the police station telling, you know, this is the man or woman you're looking for. Like they would give us all these great buzzwords and we would be like, oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And give us great things about what they would do and how they would catch these people. And it was 
it was a wonderful, you know, way to really get into this this point as a writer, this really dark place, and to really explore sides of you that you don't typically do when you write on the OC and right. you write on Alias. Right. And, you know, that said, as dark as it was, we still had a lot of fun right. <laughs> in the writer's room, like, the things that were, people would probably be offended right. by the things and right. the way we would well, talk about them. Well, you find humor in darkness, too. You find I mean, a lot of humor in yeah. it. Yeah. And that's the way that we learned the profilers actually do it. It might seem callous. It might seem insensitive. But it's the only way you could do these, talk about this and look at these pictures and, you know, live through. It's kind of like a doctor who's dealing with, you know, death and things on a daily basis. It's like how that's do you. That's a dark place to be in. Yeah. Now, how did you counterbalance that with your personal life? Did you, because it is hard to be in a dark space for 10 hours a day. And, and really, it's almost like you have to balance life and working out or yoga or something where energy is coming back in you what how you, did you deal with that literally it's like we were working at a hospital and you absolutely you turn it off mm -hmm. uh, you when you walk out the right. door you leave it behind and you go and you go see your husband or right. your wife and you do you go exercise and right. i would have to just leave it at work one of our uh uh writers simon mirror and he right would uh always we had these books and they were like profiling books and books that police officers would use and they had these like horrible graphic pictures in them and he would not bring them into his home he would leave them like in the trunk at night because right. it, it was like they weren't allowed into his house right which i just love that because it was like you're you stay there. You stay. You don't cross the line. You don't come through my threshold. Like yeah. you stay out of there. So, but it's like in your psyche because sometimes we would have dreams and be like, oh my god, I had this horrible dream where I was being chased by this horrible serial killer. But but let's just, use it in the story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that you know what we could do with that? We can make it this. That and is so, great. What was Simon Marin like to work with? He's amazing. He is such a visionary. Yeah. Simon, if you would bring him into your office while you were breaking story and you would sort of like pitch him your teaser and Simon would, we used to like, he would give you this like morsel visually. Like he would see all things in like pictures. Right. And he would give you something visually that would just elevate your story oh, like unbelievably like he was that guy right like amazing in terms of that like always seeing things in terms of like a like a, almost like a director's perspective like here's how I would do that and write it so we would just be in awe of how he saw story right like, literally and now with criminal minds too aren't they into like um lyrical and prose and symbolism and theme don't they think of that it, it seems with story though they do utilize which you wouldn't expect a procedural to utilize yeah absolutely yeah i remember with mandy patankin i mean some of the lines i would be like oh my gosh that's amazing yeah yeah, Man, yeah and with was... joe montagna what was the tone difference what he was mandy he was playing uh, a lot like himself, right. someone who was so intense and so affected by the work. Right. And it was funny. It was when Joe Montaigne came in, 
um, well, we had established um, Mandy's character, Gideon, that he was like a bird lover. And literally when we introduced uh, Joe Montaigne, who was David Rossi, like Ed wrote the scene where he was literally like out hunting. Like he was the complete antithesis right. of like right. Gideon. It's like you open up and he's like you know, blowing birds out of the sky with his shotgun. That is fantastic. <laughs> and, you know, he just looked, you know, he was a lady. David Rossi's like a ladies' man. He's been, he has all these ex-wives. And he's like this wise, wise sage who comes in and he's that guy who's like, you know, this is what we do. We get the bad guy. And it doesn't doesn't affect him right it's just see i like that they number one i love that they chose such brilliant actors so it was just like okay well let's go down this road now and figure out yeah so i i think that was very well done now when you produced your own episodes if you were thinking about your first episode of criminal minds that you wrote and produced versus your last one what was what do you feel you learned the most from the first to the last I probably, it was funny, you know, being on set, that was probably the first show where we were literally on set every minute, like crew calls at six, you're there at six the whole day. And and that's it. Even before that, once you start prep, you meet the director, you're in the casting concept meeting, you're in the concept meeting, you're, you know, notes with the director, casting every single meeting, wardrobe, you know, special effects, you know, props, everything. We were involved in every single aspect of it. And I think it was probably the same thing from our very first Criminal Minds. It was called Natural Born Killer. It was, we didn't realize how much influence we could have on it. So it's like, you know, you're in all this director and he's got all these ideas and you're like, yes, yes, yes. And from there to the time where, you know, cut to four years later on the last one and it's like, we're right along there with the director, right. like hand right. in hand, and it's they've got ideas. It's like, you know, yes, that works great. Well, what about this? And it's so so collaborative, smoother, so yeah, so much, you think. so <laughs> yeah. much smoother. Now, and just like, I like that you brought up directors with twelve episodes. You want to give a shout out to some of your favorite oh, directors? Yeah. Who Super would they big be? shout out. I would probably uh, Felix Alcala. Yes. I've done four episodes. He's with and then who I also actually got to work on the forgotten with right my very last episode of criminal minds uh was directed by Karen Gaviola oh yeah she's who great. also directed one of my episodes of the forgotten great. so I got to work with two people I'd worked with before also like John Gallagher yeah I uh, worked with him several yep. times uh Gloria Musio yes. who I love like a wonderful experience. Yeah, those are all great names. With a lot, good for you. a lot of good people. Well, and I think too, like as you're growing in this business, to have all these different visionaries, and then to find your own voice within that. I mean that that's an incredible experience. And and when we get into the uh, later, I do want to ask you about like the, what it was like to split up from your writing partner. Because that was around right now before yes. we jump into um, the forgotten. Yes, it was. Was it your? It was your last year on Criminal Minds yes. when you guys split. And yes. what? What caused the split? If you don't mind my asking. Sure. And how does one go from writing in a team for so many years to writing solo? What is that experience like? It started. Uh, we were ending the fourth season, and Ed brought us in, and he was explaining to us that. 
CBS was having and wanted him to cut the budget by a lot. And he was also producing a pilot that that year called Washington Field. Uh So he was going to trim some of the writing staff. He wasn't going to be able to keep writing teams. There was um, another male writing team. He was going to have to, you know, let go of some writers and he couldn't have writing teams because he needed less writers producing more scripts. So if the two of us were doing three of a year, he needed two people doing six total. Right. So he proposed to us, would one of us be interested, because he still wanted to work with both of us, would one of us be interested in going on to Washington Field and would the other consider staying at Criminal Minds? Which we thought, okay, that's that seems like a good idea. Um, but the caveat is, that Washington Field isn't picked up right. and it's not necessarily going to go. So we had dis- discussed it and we t- there was a lot of pros to it. You know, when you're in a writing team, there are a million pros to that. And But one of the big negatives is you're splitting your, your paycheck. So uh, we thought, okay, like, let's go for it. We proposed back to Ed, if you still do want to work, work with us and you can't bring back teams, why don't you bring us both back to Criminal Minds as individual writers? To which he said yes, he was going to bring us both back. We were go- at the time in the fourth season. We were co-executive producers, and he was going to bring us both back as supervising producers, as individual writers. And uh, so we were excited. We were still going to get to work together and be breaking story and everything. And then that week, uh, Ed left for Washington D.C. and we were met with one of our FBI profilers, and we were talking about next season, and we were talking about. Uh, uh, Jim was talking about uh, Jim Fitzgerald, all these, you know, things that have been happening, like great ideas for next year. And something happened and I don't know what it was, but I had this, I had a change of heart. And I thought to myself, if I'm really going to do this, if I'm going to, you know, after almost 10 years of being in a writing team and being on this show, I've, I've co-written four episodes here, which I've loved, but do I really want to do that here? You know, do I really want to take a chance and go do something else? And I thought about it for a couple of days and I called my agents and talked to them first and they were completely supportive of me 100%. And uh, I was like, I really think I want to go. I want to try and see what else is out there. You know, I've been on this show for four years. I don't want to be pigeonholed. I have a lot. I, I really want to create my own show someday, you know, I really want to do a lot more things, not to say that staying here wouldn't be great. Right. And I called Ed in D.C. and he had just started shooting and I had this really long conversation with him and I said, I know, you know, you've gone out on a huge limb and you're going to bring me back here, but I think I've changed my mind and like, how do you feel about that? And he could not have been more supportive. Oh, that's wonderful. He was like, I completely understand and I get it and I support you. I wish you luck. And so next thing I know, I'm leaving a top 10 show and I had a writing partner for, you know, almost 10 years. And so I needed a spec and wow. I needed it fast. Oh, so, that's great. Yes. I mean, not that's great. That's scary. Yes. It's scary. <laughs> Wait, it's scary but and it's great. great. It's great at the same time because it's empowering. So you did this empowering, empowering move and choice. And then you were... Okay, you were without a writing partner after ten <laughs> years. You were leaving a hit show, and you pro- and you were you saying you did have another script? Or no, you needed I, to write ha- one? I needed to write. Oh my 
something. What was that like? And what did you write? Uh, at first, you know, it, it, when you talk about it, it's like it was either going to be the smartest thing I ever did or the most absolute stupidest idea I had ever had in my entire life. Um, I wrote a Breaking Bad spec. And at the time, the, that was an excellent choice. Yes, that was a apparently very good it choice. was. Yeah, the first season had just ended. Actually, no, the second season was about to air. Uh-huh. I had watched the first season, and I, I said to Larry and Dan, I said, I think I want to do a Breaking Bad, and they said that's a great idea because a lot of people aren't specking that yet. And I was so in love with that show, I was obsessed with it. I agree. So in three weeks, this was I basically talked to Ed the beginning of March. I broke the story I wrote it and rewrote it and delivered it to them in like three three and a half weeks and they were like what I don't know how I did it well literally I do I was in my pajamas for three weeks straight I didn't leave the house wow but I was so I was like my whole future is like riding on this like I can't go out and do meetings until I have something that says just Deborah J Fisher on it right so they read it and they were they loved it and I got such an amazing response they were you know Tootin, they were like, this is the best spec we have at UTA and blah, blah, blah. And oh, we love that. Yeah, I was so grateful. And, you know, I went back out and I did all the meetings again. You know, I had like 20 generals and I met with eight showrunners and they all responded so well to Breaking Bad. So I was like, oh, I did the right thing. <laughs> like, right. this is exactly what I wanted to happen. And, I, you know, I just put everything. It was like, this is the show I want to write and this is the episode that I want to see. And I put my whole heart and soul into it and it, but and that's it turned what out it really takes, well because yeah. that resonates and I think especially when you're so used to writing in a team you know that first foray out you have really got to make an impact yes. so I think it was an I would say m- most of the writers who I've worked with who've written Breaking Bad and Mad Men and Dexter all have done very very well with those scripts so it, it that was a great great choice um I'm curious, too, um, in your meetings, before we jump into the forgotten, going on all those meetings, what what was that like? Like, what what did you learn in the meeting process? If you think about back to the beginning of your career to now, it it was it's funny. It was I had much more confidence in it now and it was because I had been you know doing it working as a writer for so long and you know when you have a writing partner that there's so many great things about that because you know we could call each other before and say like what are you wearing number one and then you have someone in there who's just you know if the conversation starts to lag for a second you've got somebody who can pick pick it up yeah and, and keep going but you know when it's just you it's it's just you right and I, I think that you know I had had people responding really well you know, to my script, I had had, you know, nine years under my belt of doing this. So I just, I took the plunge in, in every way. And I just went in and held my head up high and was just tried to be the person who I am outside of work and just, And look you know, where it landed you. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> I just tried to be, you know, a, a lot of writing. It's funny. You have to obviously be a good writer, but a lot of it is you're spending, you know, 10 hours a day with people in the same room. And it, it comes down to who you are as a person and, do you, do, you, do people want to sit down with yeah. you for 10 hours a day? Like, yeah. you have to be a person who can get along with other people. So, you know, that's a key. huge key. That is so key, getting along. I thought there used to be a time, if I think back to when I started in television, where studios would put up with incredibly oh. difficult personalities, yes. yellers, screamers, 
whatever. And it really, I, I do feel, even though there, there are plenty of those still out there, and there probably always will be, because I think with brilliance often comes, you know, everything that goes neuroses yes that goes with brilliance and Absolutely. I, I think you have to embrace all of that because that is your artist but I, I i do think that it has shifted where studios used to put up with so much and i don't feel like they do they do not they don't yeah. they don't have the money they mm -hmm. don't have the time and they can so best easily to learn it you. from the beginning yes be easy to get along with i yes. mean it's it it it's your reputation and your in your last show you want people to say you know that they you're you know not only a great contributor but you're easy to get along with you're, you know you're dealing with directors on set you're dealing with the actors on set you're dealing with yeah. all these departments like you have to be flexible yeah you easy you know, yeah yeah no I agree now going so the for, so the forgotten during these 20 meetings that you took, Fascinating. So, what uh, what intrigued you by the concept of the forgotten? What was what has your experience been so far on that show? The biggest thing that I wanted to do differently from Criminal Minds was I did not mind at all. I would e absolutely have gone on to another procedural, but I wanted to do something with much more character. Yes. So I wanted to combine sort of both worlds that I had been in, and the forgotten seemed to clearly have both of that. The premise was. I you love know, the pilot. Yeah, a group I of people who, yeah. are, you know, are trying to help the police yes. identify Jane and John Doe's. And right. they're not cops. They are everyday people that have jobs. Right. And they meet after work. And this they're is sort of their hobby. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. volunteers. So that really attracted me to the project right away. And then it was definitely Mark Friedman, the creator. When I sat down with him, you know, I immediately, we, we clicked like right away you know, I was like pitching him ideas like where he could go with Donovan and his daughter who had gone missing. And, you know, it seemed like we really were on the same page about, you know, what kind of show he wanted it to be and what I would kind of show I would love to work on. So it really, you know, it was a great meeting and, you know, I ended up getting an offer on that show. So that's fantastic. Yeah, it was it was it was a lot of fun. And now I know it has not been an easy ride because it's very difficult right now for new shows. I really am finding that, you know, I mean, there are so many shows on TV right now. So it's very hard for a new show to really hit the ground running. Yeah. Rating wise. I just read this stat too that only 37% of new shows get a second season. Wow. It seems like that's even higher than I would imagine. I, that does seem higher than I would have imagined. Maybe that's more yeah. ca the cable <laughs> is like elevating that a little bit. But network TV, you don't get much of a chance. Right. It's a very small window. You know, we're this is a business, yes. and there's a lot of money at stake. And if they are not getting the audience, they don't have the time yeah. to – to nurture, you know, like you and you guys have to. been on one season now. Yes, How it's been episodes? one season. It we didn't even get our back nine. We only got a back five. Right. So and immediately right off the bat, the the pilot did did well. We were on after Dancing with the Stars, mm -hmm. but it, it started to steadily go down a bit and and lose its audience. And then we were off for a while in like uh, December and January. And then when we got our back nine pickup. ABC was going to do this really big push. We were going to be on after Lost. Right. And then all of a sudden, you started to see ads for it. Like, people were hearing about it. Like, oh, that, you're on The Forgotten. I've seen ads for it now. But sadly, it just did not pick uh, up. It did not pick up. Yeah. The audience didn't hook into it. And 
Well, it's good for everybody out there listening to if 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 uh, you, do you have any? There are still more episodes airing right now, right? The, no, they, oh, there they are stopped not. airing. Yeah, at the end. So you'll of find February. out in May. Yeah, I okay. think it probably is not going to happen. They've recast some of our actors and other pilots, so right. it's looking like you know right. Christian Slater is doing a half hour for Fox. Oh wow! Michelle Borth is yes. doing a pilot okay. for ABC. Those are pretty strong indicators. <laughs> yes. Yeah, those are everyone's strong. sort of yeah. reading between the lines. Yes. Okay. Wow. All right. No, and that and that's good for writers to know out there anyway. I mean. Even if you didn't have an answer at this point in time, it's still you have to go out there and meet again and and be open to the possibility of what's next. In your mind, um, what what would you love to be on next? What would be an ideal scenario? So this, I'm looking for the exact kind of show that I wanted to get on last year. There are some really wonderfully rich procedural shows out there that you are really getting involved with those characters you're going home with them you're seeing like their home life affect them and that's I think number one the type of show that I would love to do it's sort of taking everything that I as a writer am good at all my strengths and you know putting it into that and like each network has a couple of sort of very heavy character-driven procedural shows. Right. So that's what I've been, oh, I've no, been targeting. That See, I ha- I'm dying to jump into the pilots. I've heard so many good things about like five or six. Yeah, months, I can give so. you a list of things oh, you good. should read. I would, <laughs> I would love that, Deborah. Thank you. Love that. Love that. All right. So rounding this up, I would love, because you are an excellent person because of the span of your career, uh, a few, uh, just a couple personal questions. Um with regards to being a woman in the writer's room, what has that experience been like? And if there have been challenging moments, how? what advice would you give women who are pursuing a career in writing as far as managing the writer's room, especially on some male-dominated shows? Uh, yeah, I would have to say it's it's not easy. And I was I was interviewing for a show that I'm crossing all my fingers and toes that I that I get an offer on, and uh, I was talking to the showrunner and the creator, and they are going to have more like female characters on their show, and they were talking about these women, you know, being in this cop world, and I looked at them both and I said, yeah, I know a little bit about what it's like to be a woman in a man's world, and they were like. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, duh. Just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. And, you know, this is a very male-dominated industry. And luckily, they, you know, need and require writer, uh, women writers to be on their shows. I would say when you are in a room that is male-dominated, the only way you are going to succeed is you must, must, must get over that fear. And you have to talk you good advice you cannot sit back and let everyone else decide because what i find too is um it keeps you know men and women we think differently and check and this would happen a lot of times in the in the criminal minds writers room is you know we would be down on set and you know for various reasons all the women would be gone and we would come back and listen to some of the pitches that all the the men would have and we would be like you're doing what with prentice you're doing what with AJ? Like, what is what has happened since we were gone? And we would tell them all the reasons why they should not be doing this, and then be like, oh, oh, <laughs> okay, yeah, it's probably good that we have some women on staff. And then just on the forgotten, you know, 
they were we were talking about um, pairing Alex Donovan, who is Christian Slater's character, up with one of uh, the other actresses. And, you know, thankfully there was a couple of women, Holly Harold and I, where we could give them all the reasons oh, why they great. should not do yeah. that. Yeah. And so you you as a woman, you have a lot of power and you need to use that. And when you're writing about female characters, who knows best? We do. We know how women think and feel. So you need to speak up and you cannot be afraid because the only way anyone's going to respect you is if you talk and wedge your way in there and interrupt them. They're like, who's the little girl talking? Oh, it's that woman over there. And you know what? Actually, she's got something, you know, reasonable and valuable smart and smart <laughs> yeah. to say. Yeah. And they end up you know, looking at you for advice and for your notes and for, you know, your input. But you create that through your confidence, through getting, moving past your fear and really going after it. Yes. No, that is excellent, excellent advice. Okay, so for our last question, I would love to ask you if you were to meet a brand new writer right now who's like, I want to pursue a career in writing for television, what would, say, be three pieces of advice that you would give them? I would tell them a couple of things. I would tell them that they should probably, I feel like the path that sort of I took was the right way to go, that you should try to work for a TV show. If you want to work in a drama or a comedy, you should either be a production assistant or a writer's assistant or an executive producer's assistant. You should know what it's like to, to be in that world. And secondly, I think that you should watch a lot of TV. I do. I talk to a lot of writers who don't watch TV. And I'm like, how, how do you... I don't understand that. I sort of sample like so much in cable and television and knowing what's out there and know what the trends are. I sort of keep up reading that. Um, and the last thing, which I didn't always do a lot, which I do much more, I did later in my career, is always be writing. You should always be writing and honing your craft. That's the only way you're going to learn and, and get better at what you do. There's... There, I've been doing this professionally for 10 years and I learn new things every day from people and other writers that I work with all the time. Things that I should know when I was like in college, I will write on the page and then I'll read it again. And I'm like, Oh, that's so on the nose. Like, hello, what is wrong with you? But you didn't see it then. No, I didn't see it then. And you know, just always, always be writing. That's, um, Malcolm Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours uh, in the pursuit of excellence. So I, I think that uh, that's an excellent point to end on. And I, I have loved this interview. You have given such tremendous insight and I think brought such value to the listeners. And, and I am so grateful for your candor and your honesty, um, because that is what I think writers need to hear, and I think that's what they learn the most from. So thank you for sharing that. Thanks for having me. It's been such a pleasure, and I aspire to have a radio voice like Jen Grisanti. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it. Thank you so much, and this is Jen Grisanti of StoryWise Podcast and Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc., and we are out.
You've been listening to StoryWise with Jen Grisanti. If you're looking to get to the next step in your career and need a guide who has been there and knows what it takes, go to www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com. On the website, you can also find the latest on writing programs, feature film festivals, and other writing competitions. StoryWise is produced by Joel Metzger and Hot House Bruiser Productions. 